Chapter 11 of The Motor Pirate This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Paul Hampton The Motor Pirate by George Sidney Paternoster Chapter 11 In Which the Pirate Holds Up the Brighton Mail on joining Forrest at breakfast the following morning, I found he had mapped out a program for the day which promised to keep us pretty busily occupied. First, he said, I must get into St. Albans and see whether there is any fresh information to hand. If possible, I should like to run over to Shefford, for I want to look at the place where I had my ducking and recover the piece of cord with which that almighty scoundrel secured me. Then there's the inquest at Toaster at twelve, and sometime today I must put in an appearance at headquarters to hand in my report. Perhaps I better train from Toaster for that. It'll be making two great demands on your time. Nonsense, I replied. I can run you up to town very nearly as quickly as you could manage the journey by rail. I hope you won't have to return alone, he remarked. I'm hoping to be able to inflict myself upon you for a few more days. But it is on the cards I may be taken off the job since I have met with so little success. I hope not, I answered. I should be sorry too, he said. I am more convinced than ever that our friend is living within a twenty-mile radius of this house. What grounds do you have for thinking so, I asked. The very slightest at present, he declared frankly. And until I have seen the police reports from other parts of the country, I will not commit myself definitely to the opinion. I could not get anything more out of him then, but after he had made a note of all the information to be obtained at St. Albans, we were on the road by 9.30, he became more communicative. The information he obtained did not amount to much. On the previous evening, the motor pirate had not made his appearance anywhere, while on the evening before, the only outrage of which he had been guilty was the murder which we had discovered. On that night, however, his car had been reported as having been seen on various roads in the Midlands, one appearance having been recorded as far north as Peterborough. That confirms my opinion, Forrest declared. The Peterborough report gives the time of his appearance as about 2.50. The sun rises at 5, and it is beginning to be light an hour earlier. It must have been about 4 when he dropped me into the water at Shefford. Hitherto he has not been seen by daylight at all. Clearly he must have delayed getting rid of me until he thought it was dangerous to carry me about any longer. He may even have been close to his own home, though he would probably select a spot twenty or thirty miles away at least. It seems likely, I agreed. Certain of it, said Forrest. Now we will get along to Shefford. We had a very pleasant run, and a mile from the village Forrest stopped me where a deep pool fringed with rushes skirted the road. This is the spot, he cried. He left me in the car and scrambled through the hedge into an adjoining field. He came running back with the dilapidated overcoat sodden with water in one hand and a piece of rope in the other. Thought I could not be mistaken, he cried. When he was in the car again, he examined the rope carefully. Just an ordinary piece of half-inch cord, he remarked. It's not of much value as a clue, but as a piece of evidence. I've known a man's life hang upon a slighter thread before now. He chuckled grimly at his own pleasantry. Where next, I inquired. Toaster, he replied, and I wheeled the car round, and we were soon making the dust fly again. We were not detained very long at the inquest. 
Forrest had a few words with the coroner so that after formal evidence of identification had been given and I had made my statement as to the finding of the body, the inquiry was adjourned. Thus, plenty of time was left at our disposal, and we did not hurry on our way to town, even breaking our journey on the way for lunch. The weather remained delightfully fine. Clean roads, blue sky, soft winds combined to make ideal weather for motoring. We reached town about four and went straight to Scotland Yard. Forrest went in while I waited for him. Then he returned for me and, taking me up in the lift, he piloted me into the presence of the commissioner, who I found to be an exceedingly courteous gentleman. He expressed himself indebted to me for the assistance I had rendered the department. I did not see that my assistance had been of much practical value, and I said so, but I added that I was very keen on the motor pirate's capture, and I should be glad to render any service in my power which would tend to such an end. Anything you can do to assist Inspector Forrest will be greatly appreciated, he declared. Of course, it is not our usual plan to make use of outside assistance, but we are not so bound up in red tape as to refuse such aid as that you offer. We had ten minutes' further conversation, and then Forrest and I left together. The detective was in high glee. He had obtained carte blanche to do as he liked. His chief had expressed every confidence in him, while urging him to spare no effort to obtain the pirate's arrest. The fact is, he said, the papers have been rubbing it into us for allowing such audacious crimes to be committed right under our noses, and the chief is wild to get the chap. Half of the detective force are already engaged on the job. I fancy I should get him myself single-handed sooner or later if he were a sane man, but as it is, the cunning of a madman upsets every calculation. You still hold to the theory that he is mad? I asked. Cannot explain his treatment of me in any other way, he replied promptly. Well, what's the next move, I asked, when we had returned to our car. I suppose we may as well go for a prowl tonight on the off chance of finding him. We might try a new district, answered Forrest. You may have noticed that he breaks fresh ground every time he reappears. Where shall it be, then? Forrest answered my question with another. Supposing yourself to be in his place, and the desire to attract notoriety a stronger motive than mere plunder, what should you do? There flashed into my memory what Winter's guest had said about the Brighton parcels mail, and I said laughingly, I fancy I should hold up the Brighton mail. As likely a feat as any for him to attempt, replied Forrest thoughtfully. I glanced up at the clock in the Tower of St. Stephen's. The hands pointed to a quarter before five. Well, I said, we may as well run down to Brighton by daylight and get acquainted with the road, since I have only driven over it once before. We can dine at the Metropole comfortably, spend a couple hours on the front after dinner, and have plenty of time to meet the mail on the road afterwards. A most excellent suggestion, agreed the inspector, and his eyes twinkled at the thought of the program I had mapped out. We started forthwith, reaching Brighton before sunset. I refilled my tanks with petrol before putting the car up at the Metropole and reserving a table for dinner. We had a wash walked to the hove end of the esplanade, and came back to our dinner with appetites equal to anything. We sat over our coffee a long while, Forrest making the time fly by spinning yarns about his experiences. Then we smoked a cigar on the pier, and so whiled away the time until eleven. If we had started, then we should possibly have reached town before the mail had started, but as we were both tired of dawdling about, I proposed that we should extend our tour. Forrest was quite agreeable. Really, we are out on a fool's errand, he remarked. 
we are just as likely to meet him on one road as another. Yet I have a presentiment that we shall hear something further about him tonight. If we do meet him, remember one thing. One of us must get in the first shot, and it must not miss. Don't wait for me to shoot then, I replied. We got our car, and after a glance at the map, I told my companion where I proposed to go. I run along the coast to Worthing, there to strike inland for Horsham, from Horsham to make for the Brighton Road about Crawley, roughly about a forty-mile run in all, and I reckon that if we kept to the legal speed limit, we should just about meet the mail. Forrest made no objection to my suggestion, so we started at our slowest pace. I had very little to do, and the ride was one of the most enjoyable I have ever experienced. The salt breath of the sea was in our faces and the roar of it in our ears. I was quite sorry when on reaching Worthing it became necessary to leave the coast. Inland, the roads were absolutely deserted. We did not meet a single person between Worthing and Horsham, and for the first time I realized how easily the motor pirates' movements could evade notice. At Horsham, we looked in at the police station, and Forrest made a formal inquiry as to whether anything had been heard of our quarry in the neighborhood. But as we expected, without result. We remained there a little time to stretch our legs and to drink a cup of tea, which the officer in charge prepared for us, and on leaving we proceeded at the same steady pace, arriving in Crawley something after four. There we found that the mail had passed through a quarter of an hour before our arrival, and I questioned whether it would be worth our while to remain any longer on the road. We might as well make a night of it, said Forrest, in reply to my remark on the subject. So I turned the car in the direction of Brighton again. We bowled along at about fifteen miles an hour, at which rate I reckoned on catching the mail within half an hour. But we were destined to overtake it in a considerably shorter time, for just after passing the third milestone after leaving the village, our path was blocked by the huge van standing in the middle of the road and all across it. I pulled up at once. Apparently the vehicle was not much damaged, but the door was broken open while the parcels with which it had been laden were scattered all over the roadway. One horse lay on the roadway perfectly still. The others had disappeared. The moment we stopped, Forrest leaped from the car. I followed his example. The first object which met our eyes was the form of a man. He lay perfectly still, and I thought he was dead, but my companion had sharper eyes. Taking a knife from his pocket, he hacked at cords which bound the man hand and foot. More work of the motor pirate, remarked Forrest grimly as I came to his assistance. The man was not dead, but he had been so roughly gagged that had we arrived ten minutes later, he probably would have been beyond human help. In the condition he was, it took us ten minutes working vigorously to restore his respiration, and after that it took the whole of the contents of my pocket flask to restore him sufficiently to enable him to give us an account of the mishap which had befallen him. Then we learned that the man was the driver of the mail, and that Forrest's smise that we had happened once more upon the handiwork of the motor pirate was correct. He had, it appeared, been driving quietly along, when his attention had been arrested by the curious high-toned hum which presaged the pirate's approach. He was wondering what the curious noise could be, when he suddenly realized that a long, low car was beside him. He did not anticipate any harm either to himself or to his charge, for, though he fancied that the stranger was a noted criminal, he shared the impression, pretty common until then, that the pirate confined his attentions to motorists. The stranger did not even call upon him to pull up. 
He ran beside the coach, then slightly increasing his speed, he drew level with the wheelers of the team. There was a sound of a pistol shot. The off-wheeler fell dead in his tracks, bringing down the other horses in his fall and swinging the vehicle right across the road. The driver only escaped being pitched from his seat by the strap which held him to it. Then, continued the man, He ups with his pistol and tells me to come down, and down I toddles pretty quick. Sorry to inconvenience you, my good fellow, he says. Don't mention it, I says, as polite as you'd be with a pistol pointing at your head. I want the keys here to this ear wagon, he says. Sorry, they don't trust them to us drivers, I answers. Don't matter worth a cent, he says. I've another way of air opening that strong box. Put your hands behind your head and turn around, he says. I done it, and he trusses me up like a bloomin' chicken, and sticks my own anchor down my throat. With that, he walks along to the front door and blows the bloomin' locks off with his pistol. That did it. He looks inside, and the way he cleared them parcels out was a sight. Well, you can see for yourself what it's like. The other horses were that mad they kicks themselves free. He goes through the parcels, cool as a cucumber, until he routes out the registered parcels. He puts them in his car. Tartar, he says, waving his hand, and off he goes just about five minutes afore you junts come along. When Forrest realized how near we had been to coming to close quarters with our quarry, he went aside, and for the first time since I had made his acquaintance, I heard him swear. It was a successful effort. He returned to my side the next moment. The telegraph is our only chance, he said. Drive like hell back to Crawley. I did. There we set the wires throbbing and began to scour the countryside for any traces of the pirate. We did not give up our quest until eleven o'clock in the morning. I think we inquired at every house and cottage within a ten-mile radius of the scene of the outrage, but without finding a single person who had seen or heard of the motor pirate. Once more he had appeared and disappeared without leaving the faintest clue to his identity. End of chapter 11 Recording by Paul Hampton